The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Josh Korda. Since 2005, Josh has been the guiding teacher of Dharma Punks NYC, and he's a fully empowered Dharma teacher in the Against the Stream lineage. Josh is widely known for his podcast, which has over 1.4 million downloads, and he's written numerous articles on insight meditation for Tricycle, Magazine, Lion's Roar, Buddha Dharma, and The Huffington Post. A review of his new book, Unsubscribe, Opt Out of Delusion, Tune into Truth, appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Josh Gorda, welcome to Essential Conversations. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, this is a lot of fun. The book was really fun to read. I know very little about Zen. I sat for 10 years and know nothing, which either means I'm enlightened or I'm just a slow learner. Uh, but I don't know hardly anything about, uh, you know, Dharma punks and the whole, that, that whole aspect of Buddhism and certainly nothing about against the stream lineage. So that, that, let's start with that. How did, how, what, what was your path to Buddhism and what's your path in Buddhism? Okay, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, first, just to be just to draw a small delineation, there's no way you know this, but uh, Dharma punks and against the stream are not Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism is uh, lineage from uh, areas of, well, obviously Japan, some areas of China. Uh, our lineage, Theravadan, is from Thailand and Burma. So uh, we're not we're not Zen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> so I knew even less than I thought about Dharma punks. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're uh, Theravadan, and and I, I guess assumed I don't know why that uh, you're in the Mahayana stream. But okay, fine, great. So um, I was born here uh, in Manhattan on the uh, where I. Well, I'm actually not in Manhattan. I live in Brooklyn, but in New York City, I should I should say I was born in the Upper West Side of way upper west side of Manhattan. My mom was Jewish, but very assimilated. My dad was uh, uh, a born Russian Orthodox Catholic uh, path that he somewhat, uh, that's mildly saying, despised. And uh, he was a, a voracious alcoholic up until I was around 12. And then he got sober in the early, mid-1970s. And uh, part of 
becoming sober, the deal was he had to have some form of a spiritual path in 12-step recovery. So uh, you had to have some kind of higher power. So my dad ever being uh, against any kind of theistic spiritual path due to his own upbringing, uh, he chose Zen. And so from a very young life, I was brought with my dad. Uh, I would say start, even before my teens, he would bring me to Buddhist centers, uh, largely just to keep him company. And uh, so he would drag me to the various meetings. And uh, suddenly the bookshelves in the house were filled with uh, <clears throat> books by various Roshis, uh, like Philip Keplo and Suzuki and so forth. And uh, the other half of the bookshelves were filled with my mom's books, which were, were lined with um, famous psychologists. And uh, so I always, just looking through the books on the bookshelf, I got the idea that the Buddha was a great early psychologist. I always read him in that light. And so that sort of laid the foundations for uh, basically, in many ways, the rest of my uh, life and practice. I started uh, in college at Oberlin writing papers from a Buddhist psychology perspective. I was uh, took uh, courses on studying uh, the spiritual path. I just got interested in it and then, uh, just continued on with that for, uh, after that, I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of people in, in the United States, uh, and I, I know you've got a different approach to this, which I really want to get into Buddhism and capitalism. But before we, we go in that direction, this notion of of you know seeing the Buddha as an early psychologist. Now that it's clear that you're coming from the Theravadan tradition, and it, it seems to me, and, and I'm just speculating, and you can respond, obviously, but it seems to me that that a lot of Theravada Buddhism was brought to the United States by people like Jack Cornfield and Susan's uh, um, Sharon Sal Salzberg, right? And and uh, a lot of these early teachers were Jews. And they all ended up as psychologists. And I remember in the first issue of Tricycle Magazine, there was sort of like the future of Buddhism, you know, in America, what is it? And I don't know who wrote the article, but I remember they were saying that the only way Buddhism is going to take hold in America is as a psychology. So what's your, what's your sense of that? Do you, do you see that being, being an off, uh, was it, prophetic is it true is it wise what's your your notion of 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 uh, buddhism and and psychology well i don't know that it's the only way uh that seems a little all encompassing certainly it's the only way that uh it's the only arena that i'm particularly interested uh, in it as a term in terms of it being a valuable addition to the healing modalities therapeutic modalities that are in place I think that uh, early Buddhist tools, when integrated with some of the wonderful insights and uh, tools of Western uh, therapeutic endeavor, uh, offer a wonderful uh, combination. And uh, there's so many 
overlaps. Now, of course, in addition, there's other areas where uh, Buddhism and the Dharma could be integrated, not just as a form of therapy, but as a, obviously as a spiritual practice integrated into yogic traditions and so forth. But my particular interest is in the overlapping of uh, uh, Buddhism and contemporary psychology in counseling. And so much of what I do in spiritual counseling integrates both traditions. So do you invite people as part of their therapeutic work with you to, to, do Vipassana meditation or to mindfulness practice? You know, it's interesting. Of course, I do encourage that because part of um, the, the two ways that human beings process emotions and emotional experiences is one, by connecting with the somatic embodied feelings that are the, that are the inevitable uh, signals from the right hemisphere of the brain, letting us know that something has happened that's uh, uh, import to our lives. Uh, so connecting with these feelings is part of the challenge because so many of so much of our lives now is disembodied on smartphones, laptops, you know, engaged in external uh, distractions that a lot of people, who come into practice have very little emotion regulation or awareness tools. But then a lot of my work is also getting people to connect with other human beings in a authentic way, which means not in a people pleasing or performative way, but to connect with other human beings in a way where we're vulnerably revealing our emotional affect states disclosing our feelings in a way where we can expect a safe container for others. And so I do a lot of both. And of course, a lot of helping people, helping people normalize their experience and uh, understand that they're not alone in the issues that they're grappling with. You know, in, in the early days, I guess, of Buddhism in, in America, maybe early is too general, but let's say in the 70s, you had a lot of, and later, you had a lot of, of teachers who, while they seem to be very sophisticated in the, in the philosophy of Buddhism and the practices of Buddhism, psychologically they were, I don't know what you want to say, I don't know if I want to say damaged or they were unhealthy in any case, which led them to, to do things that were clearly unhealthy, exploit their students, um, you know, a lot, lot of issues around that in various Buddhist centers. And I'm wondering if the merger or, or this, this interplay, this conversation that you're having, you know, in your work between Buddhism and psychology, in some sense, heals something that was missing in Buddhism itself. I don't know if that makes sense when I'm asking you. Well, certainly, it's a very valid point that, um, uh, especially uh, in the 1970s, uh, there was an 80s, and even, frankly, contemporary, there's uh, contemporaneously, there's uh, been a lot of abuse of the teacher-student relationship. I'm not sure if 
my personal work in integrating psychology and the Dharma is um, is th- if that's the the way to address that. I do know that personally, I, I've written a lot on this: uh, the importance of teachers being disclosing and having a very strict set of uh, boundaries uh, uh, in their relationships with students is very, very, very important. And uh, thankfully, in the against the stream uh, lineage, uh, and in certainly the Dharma Punch lineage, there's uh, uh, a great understanding and emphasis upon that. So um, I'm not so sure, though, if simply the integration of Buddhism and psycho- or the Dharma with psychology is necessarily assures that those transgressions won't be uh, eliminated, though. Right, right. I don't know if anything can, can assure that, and it certainly isn't limited to Buddhism. Uh, I think any clergy person ought to be in therapy just to keep from believing their own hype, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah. But I think the, for me, one thing that does it is I wrote a, uh, uh, a long article for um, a Tricycle on the importance of teachers disclosing their own foibles, their own issues, their own challenges, their own addictions. And I, the reason I believe that's so essential is because it essentially kicks the, the, uh, the throne out from underneath the teacher, as, you, as it were. It... it Part of the allure that allows, I think, people to be sucked into an abusive relationship is thinking that somehow the teacher has figured it out entirely, is on another shore, they're beyond suffering, they've got it all sussed out. And one, I know so many Buddhist teachers, I've met so many uh, Buddhists you know, teacher gatherings, councils over the years in my practice. And we are all flawed beings dealing with our own issues. And the more I think teachers disclose the struggles, their anxieties, their depression, their their failures in relationships or whatever, uh, the less abuse than there will be. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's somewhat new. You know, I mean, we're different generations. And and I know that when I was studying with with Roshis and different spiritual leaders and gurus, the assumption was that these people were perfect. They were enlightened. they They could do no wrong. And then you found out that they were doing a lot of wrong. And it, it was a shock to the to the system, which, which seems to me. And again, you know, I'm I'm looking for your response here. But when I when I was thinking about Dharma punks, I mean punk. I'm assuming there's a connection with with the punk mu- movement, and that was all about rejecting authority, not trusting authority. 
which I think is very healthy. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I read Buddhism. I think the Buddha says something very similar. Don't believe anything simply because you know, it's in a book or some old person tells you it's true. You have to check these things out for yourself. Is that the connection between the Dharma and, and punk? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, first, <coughs> uh, Noah Levine, who, whose father was a notable Buddhist, um, Noah formed Dharma punks in, I believe it was uh, San Francisco, uh, right around uh, Y2K, uh, and uh, wrote the book Dharma Punks. And Noah, like my background, was in growing up in not only punk rock, but in uh, embracing that uh, lifestyle that was questioning everything and was not accepting uh, certainly uh, the, uh, not embracing the path that was validated by capitalism of, you know, essentially chasing after the myth of financial security and the idea of uh, trying to uh, amass material goods as a way to feel uh, a sense of safety in the world or purpose in the world and to try to, in fact, uh, challenge all of the uh, ingrained cultural memes or hegemonic beliefs that were foisted upon are foisted mm -hmm. upon us, especially in our culture. And uh, in that questioning and rejecting of uh, a lot of the uh, in the sort of uh, uh, I, I guess uh, traditional paths. Uh, and embracing lifestyles outside. A lot of us grew up in uh, living not in traditional uh, apartments, but at times living in uh, alternative communes or, uh, you know, staying in apartments that weren't exactly legal, <laughs> going to shows that were done DIY listening to music that was very aggressive. And so uh, Noah also, when he, like me, when he first went to Buddhist centers, encountered a lot of people that weren't necessarily um, overly welcoming with the appearance of young uh, sort of alternative people, like of a better term. And so part of the name Dharma Punks was to create a safe space for people from the margins, or at least the people from communities that were not usually attending Buddhist centers. You know, when I first went, there was a lot of, you know, people now, I guess, my age. Uh, but at the time I first went to Buddhist centers, they were 25, 35 years older. They didn't look entirely welcoming and their entire uh, the way they dressed and the way they their demeanor was very very different than my own all right you're talking about me <laughs> <laughs> which is fine which is fine i have i have no tats i have nothing <clears throat> you mentioned a couple times uh, capitalism and i wanted in the couple minutes we have left i wanted to just bring up two things one about the book we're going to end on that 
you mentioned capitalism a couple of times. And in the book, Unsubscri uh, Unsubscribe, you say, well, I'm just going to read it to you so we don't have to paraphrase it. After spending some time with contemporary mindfulness teachers, a dispiriting realization began to take shape. Buddhist practice has grown rapidly in the West, especially in this country, the United States, par uh, partially because it's been revamped into a shape that is chummy with capitalism. That, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. It seems to me that a lot of practice, mindfulness practice, is simply a way to get you to be more attentive as a cog in the capitalist machine. And we do mindfulness in education so the kids will sit still when maybe sitting still is not what needs to happen. We do, I mean, I, I interviewed um, Congressman Ryan about his mindfulness group in the uh, Capitol, in the, in, the, in the House of Representatives. And I said, how does the religion end fit in with separation of church and state? And he just laughed. He says, we don't do religion. This is just stress release because it's such a difficult job. So, you know, one thing we talked about was, you know, Buddhism coming together with psychology in this country. Now it's, do you sense it's, I mean, it's dispiriting to you. So I'm going to guess that's in, you sense that in some sense, Buddhism is being co-opted by capitalism. I mean, capitalism co-ops everything. So do you see that in, in Buddhism? And is your approach to Buddhism really, is that the stream you're against? Yeah, well, certainly, uh, <clears throat> if the Buddha's uh, view of um, spiritual practice and the way to live life was summarized in what's called the Eightfold Path. But in mindfulness, only two has been airlifted out, the appropriate uh, concentration and awareness, or sati, mindfulness, but uh, the other six uh, valuable tools uh, have been essentially abandoned in what is now being presented as mindfulness, and those tools ask for people to radically investigate their priorities. Um, for example, right livelihood is not just about not causing harm uh, to other individuals in your livelihood, but it's also asking people to attain a livelihood that leaves them enough time to have other, have quality of life, a good work-life balance, to have enough time to uh, not only have spiritual practice, but to have uh, meaningful experiences outside of work. And when mindfulness is brought into companies where people are regularly working 10, 12-hour days, it's essentially being used as a tool to invalidate the very dharma and the very spiritual goals that it was developed for. Um, I've been asked by many, many different companies to go in and teach uh, to give you know talks on mindfulness, and um, I I just don't do it. The one time I did it, I was asked by a group of engineers at a very famous uh, large um, internet uh, company, and I don't want to name their names because you know they were nice about it. And I went in and I didn't talk to them about meditation. I talked to them how important it was that they connect with each other, that they limit the amount of hours that they work, that they 
that they gave back to the community and and prioritized uh, developing meaning and purpose in their lives over simply adding a tool to allow them to focus or not have as much stress at work. And at the end of that, they were very nice. You know, it was clearly wasn't what they were expecting I would talk about. But uh, I think that really right now, that's what we need more of is a message rather than uh, just uh, having people flooding into large corporate arenas, giving workers tools to hunker down for long hours without losing their minds. Yeah, which is essentially, in my opinion, what capitalism tends to do. We're going to have to leave it right there, Josh. This is really fascinating. And, you know, I'm going to have to encourage people to go and, and take a look at the book and take a look at your website, dharmapunksnyc.com, because there's a lot more to learn uh, and uh, a lot more that you have to offer than, than we had time for. Our guest today was Josh Corda. You can learn more about Josh's work at his website, dharmapunksnyc.com, and read the review of his new book, Unsubscribe, Opt Out of Delusion, Tune into Truth, in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Josh Corda, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. You're very welcome. It was a joy. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness with yogis from around the world. And do so in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour and part pilgrimage as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites that we'll visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com slash holyland with Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log into spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. While you're on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast, leave us a rating and a review. We can always learn how to do this show more effectively if we have input from those who care enough to listen. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.